as you're standing, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Talking about transitions, Brooke, would you wave? Brooke and Matt Orsburn, where are you, Matt? Are you out here? Right here. Uh, they have been a part of, of our family for a while. Uh, their kids, Nora and Nolan, uh, were born here, and uh, they're going to be transitioning to the great state, the great show-me state of Missouri. And uh, so we, we hate that. But the, the parents get them, okay? And that's always a good thing, right? Where the grandparents are uh, there. And uh, so we're going to miss you guys. But um, we know that God has just so many good things in store for you and for your family. And uh, so today, let's continue in a study of 1 Timothy. And as I uh, find, over and over again, we'll, we'll come to a particular week in our emphasis, like the transition of graduates, and I look at the passage of Scripture that is before us, we go verse by verse, and lo and behold, there is something there not only for all of us, but for graduates making that transition in particular, and so we will speak specifically to you and specifically to everyone else, including me. And uh, so let's hear this passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 8 and reading through verse 12, and then we will unpack what Paul has to say to us. He begins by saying, for while bodily training or bodily discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds, first of all, promise for the present life, and then secondly, also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, that godliness, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Father, thank you for this opportunity now to worship you as we continue coming from our time of singing praises to you to now looking at your word and, and diving into your word. And I'll be sharing and supporting what I say with many scriptures today, but ultimately, Lord, it's your Holy Spirit who takes your word and drives it into our hearts. And, and that's our only hope, not my words, but your word, empowered by your spirit that will see transformation, a change that will happen. And so I pray that that would be affected today, even as we work through this passage of Scripture. Lord, it says so much to each person in this room. And so I thank you for that and pray now that you would help us as we work through this, the specific applications of it, and I thank you for it as we learn. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Last week, if you remember, uh, I spoke of the greatest threat to the church. What is the greatest threat to the church? It's not from the outside. It's not politics. It's not the economic situation. It's not any of those things. The greatest danger to the church is that the church would not have leaders, godly leaders, as a part of our church to help us to move forward, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, I want to continue a little bit on that theme. I'm not asking about the greatest, but I'm talking about today, ask you the question, what do you think would be two opposite but equally devastating lies impacting Christians and impacting the church. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of demons and the fact that, yes, Satan has his own systematic theology. He's lying to us. He lies to people in the church. And so I I think, and in light of what we're talking about today, I think it's very, very applicable to each one of us, particularly the graduates, to opposite but equally devastating lies that you find in the church have to do with age. This is an excuse from some. I'm too young. I'm I'm too young. Pastor, I know you're talking about godliness. I'm really not, I'm too young for that. Jeremiah kind of had that excuse, didn't he? When he said, when he was called, probably as a, about a 17-year-old teenager, and he was called by God to be a prophet, I, I'm too young. Now, by the way, what was God's, what was God's word to him, encouragement? I will be with you. No matter what your age, that's really all you need. Now, let's go to the other side. Uh-oh. I find this as an excuse. I'm too old. Lord, I'm ready to retire. I'm, I'm too old. I'm ready to shuffle off this mortal coil. Moses was 80 when he was called to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He didn't say those exact words. He had a ton of other excuses. Let somebody else do it. And what was God's encouragement to Moses? I will be with you. So really, that's the message of today as as we work through this passage of Scripture. Let me say it like this. I say we're going to focus on our graduates, but really it's for everybody. No, listen, no matter what age you begin to walk on the road to godliness, you won't stop until you pass from this life into the next. That could be when God calls you home in death, or it could be if He comes back. That is a very real possibility. But, but look at what Peter says when he looks toward the very end, when things are going to burn up and The earth won't be destroyed by a flood. It'll be destroyed by being burned up. But he, he reminds us what we need to continue to do. Now, please, each one of you, individualize this. Each one of us looking ahead and seeing the way that everything's going to end. What sort of people must we be 
in lives of holiness and godliness. And let me just say it like this. I've been using this term the last couple of weeks. If you are a gospeled person, if the gospel of Jesus Christ has impacted you, if you have repented and believed that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, the active obedience of Christ, and then he died on Calvary's cross, his obedience on the cross, his substitute standing in our place and then was buried and then rose from the dead. And if you have internalized that, if you have believed that, you are a gospeled person and you are to be growing in holiness. Why? What's the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you don't enjoy someone really that's the polar opposite of you. And that's why, that's why God said, be holy. Be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. If you really want to enter into my enjoyment, be holy. And what does that mean? Is there a difference between holiness and godliness? Only this nuance. Holiness is the initial act, and it continues, by the way. So, teenagers or graduates or older people, it's a continual thing in your life. You are pulling out of the sinful world in which you live. Now, follow me very carefully. That doesn't mean a trip to the monastery to disengage entirely from the world. But look at it. Therefore, come out from among their, from their midst and be separate from them in terms of the lifestyle that you lead. Holiness is coming out. Separation. Godliness is, you'll see it in just a minute, is the putting on, strive. It's that forward motion to be like God. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's why it's so important. But then we see 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Don't you know that your body We're not just talking corporate body, but your body individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Glorify God with your body. That's basic godliness. That's what we're about. This is not just a Sunday club that we come to. This is about us learning what it means to be holy and godly people from the youngest. If you have been born again, remember you're on that path of holiness and godliness which will not end until you go to be with Jesus. And here is kind of the way that I I look at it in, in terms of a balance. It's putting off and putting on. And I've walked with the Lord for a long time. You know what? I'm still putting off old putting off sin, putting off patterns of disobedience, and I'm putting on the things of Christ. Holiness, putting off. Godliness, putting on. Walking in the likeness of God. And uh, that's, what, that's what God's grace is all about. Let, let me say something that I, I... I said this this morning in REBF. By the way, whenever I say that, I always remember to put in a plug for ABF. 
And you say, what's ABF? Adult Bible Fellowship. Sunday school for adults. We still call it Sunday school. Oh, okay, I see, I get it. A rose by any other name. But there is, there, there is something about the corporate gathering where we come together and we sing and we worship and we listen to the word preached. But folks, you are, you are missing a component of your growth in Christ if you're neglecting that meeting together in a small group, whether it's inside or outside the church, we just provide an opportunity on Sunday mornings where someone is watching your kids. And you can go and we just open the scriptures, at least in our ABF class, and we just wrestle with and chew on the Word of God. And so this morning we were talking about certain things out of 1 Peter. And I made this statement, and I think this is huge. Graduates, hear me. Teenagers, hear me. Older people, hear me. A non-believer, if you're here today, and, and I mentioned the gospel a minute ago, if you're not a gospeled person yet, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you may be a moral person. You got that? You may do good things. In fact, you could be more moral than I am or more moral than your Christian neighbor. But one thing, listen, a moral person cannot be is godly. Because the whole center of being and motivation is not there. Now, a godly person should be growing in the things that are moral but always for the purpose of glorifying God. And that's what grace is all about, the grace of God. Some people will take grace as, uh, you know, uh, it's all, we're all about grace here, which translated means you can pretty much live what, whatever way you want to live. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for, for all people, training us to renounce, look at this, ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age. Didn't we read this a few moments ago? It's good to have a little bit of reinforcement, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself uh, people watch this for his own possession. We're zealous for good works. Moral people are not, uh, not necessarily, if they're outside of Christ, for sure. Moral people are not godly people, but godly people ought to always be pursuing good works. Now, with that as an introduction to what Paul is telling us here about godliness particularly to Timothy, the young pastor, and then to the church at Ephesus. Let's look at three things growing out of this passage of Scripture. Number one, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Godliness is of value in every way. And then skip over. To this end we toil and strive. First point that I want to make today, the gospel truth worthy of being fully accepted is that godliness is good. 
last week. If you haven't seen or heard the sermon from last week, you can go back. And we said that godliness is valuable for everything. That's what it says in verse 8. How is it valuable? I thought about that this week. Well, there, there are a lot of things. Uh, kids, if you're walking, watch this. If you're walking in godliness, it means that you're going to obey your parents. All right? If you're walking in godliness, it means you're going to be a good steward and do your best at school. Okay? That's what it means. So there, there are benefits like that. But I thought about that, and I don't, those are... Those are Good benefits. But going back to the old question, what is the chief end and purpose of man? Here is what I believe in this life is the greatest benefit of godliness. You ready? Psalm 16, verse 11. You make me know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. And if you back up a few verses, look, I have set the Lord always before me. There's, there's a life pursuing godliness. Setting the Lord continually before yourself because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you think that's another benefit that would be good for the times we live in? Joy, but also, you're setting the, God, the, the Lord your God before you, you will never be shaken. Watch this. Therefore, my heart is glad. It's another great benefit. And my whole being rejoices. There's the joy factor. My flesh also dwells secure. And I hope that what I said last week, and I just said it now, that godliness is beneficial for everything now and for eternity, that you didn't think of temporal blessings like safety and affluence and comfort and things like that, but you thought of joy, true lasting joy, which is a security that you'll have for the rest of your life and that will never run out. You see, godliness holds promise for life right now. Dwelling in His presence, pleasing Him, not trying to be approved by Him, but pleasing Him out of a love relationship brings joy. And guess what? Now watch this. Satan comes in and he, get, he gets alongside of us and he's going to, he's going to pull out one of his doctrines, doctrine of demons. And here's what he will have you do. And again, watch this. He will have you take a cheap substitute for joy called happiness. Happiness is not necessarily bad. It's just dependent on outside circumstances. You can be bummed one minute and be happy the next, depending on the circumstances. And a lot of factors go into that. 
And, and so a good question maybe to ask yourself, I don't care, young or old, a good question to ask yourself, when you came into this place today, were you happy? Oh, my. And you might not have been happy, but were you full of the joy of Jesus? And, and I'm, I, I really am afraid that throughout my life, and it's a, by the way, it's a constant battle. That's why every day... You have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit will, will be assisting you in impl- applying the word because, because you will fall into the devil's substitute, cheap substitute for joy, happiness. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he looked He lived about 2,000 years ago, and he looked forward to our day. I think it's our day. He talks a lot about later times and things like this, but now in 2 Timothy, he talks about in the last days. And I've told you before, I believe that we are in the last days. If if, if that means another 1,000 years, that's okay. But in the last days, look around, see if this is true. People will be lovers of pleasure. Stop. Why? 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 Because pleasure brings happiness. But it's temporary. It's temporary. Okay? But they'll be lovers, and he's talking about church folks, they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. You can come in here and have a big smile on your face even though you had a huge fight with your wife or husband or children on the way to church. We're talking about that in ABF again. I mean, did anybody ever? I I told the class, I said, Jan and I are a lot more spiritual now that we've raised our kids. (laughs) I I, I hate to confess it, but my kids remember, and Katie sat in the middle between Amy and Jason, and there were sometimes I'm driving to church, and I've got my Bible, and I'm trying to whack the offender. And Amy and Chad, uh, Amy and Jason just just got near the, the the corner, and Katie was always in the middle. She always got it. So, and so you come in, and and I would always tell them, I got to preach after doing that. You know, well, God is gracious. But but don't accept happiness as a cheap substitute for real joy. And then remember that there's a continuation. We just step from this life into the next. Now, death is still the enemy. We know that. But the transition for a believer is we continue and we continue in the fullness of joy. Well, let's go on to the second application here uh, from verses 10 and 11. Godliness is to be constantly, tirelessly, hopefully pursued and taught. <sighs> go after it. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, not the dead gods of the world that are no gods, but the living God who is the Savior of all people. Look, if you're an unbeliever, the fact that you're here today and you are not currently experiencing the judgment of God and His wrath in eternity, He saves you today so that he can be your savior 
through repentance and faith, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Listen, Paul was really, he wanted, he wanted Timothy not only to live this, but he wanted Timothy to also teach to the folks there at Ephesus and to the folks at wanted me to teach to the folks at Heritage Baptist Church. The pursuit of godliness is a lifelong assignment. Okay? It's an assignment. And it's a lifelong assignment. It's a commitment. If you are a gospeled person, you are committed to a lifetime of godliness. Now, remember... If you're a gospel person, you're not trying to earn your acceptance with God. Your doing grows out of what Christ has done on the cross. So he's finished the work. Do grows out of done. Always remember that. We are not trying to earn salvation, but we are entering into a relationship where we are seeking to please the Lord. And it's a constant, constant fight and a battle. Work out your salvation with a seriousness, with a fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Thank God He does, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Again, it's hard work, but just like Jeremiah, I'm too young. Moses, I'm too old. What was, what was it that God said to help him out? And he'll help you out. I am with you. I am with you. God is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Toil, toil, that's wearisome effort. Any of you toil this week? Maybe not on your job. Maybe you've got a job where you don't toil physically. You toil mentally or whatever else. But some of you did. Some of you this weekend, you toiled in the yard, right? Strive. There's, a, there's another word, depending on the translation, that word strive can also mean suffer reproach. It means to keep on striving toward godliness, pursue godliness, toil, even if you suffer reproach for seeking after godliness. Paul put it like this, fight the good fight. You know what the, if you've heard that preached, you know what those words, fight the good fight of the faith? The Greek words, agonizomai, I think that's the way you say it. We get our word agony. So what Paul is saying, look, in your fight to pursue holiness, agonize the good agony. Sometimes it feels like that. Putting off, putting on, putting off, putting on. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, following after Him so that you can live to His glory. And that's what it's really all about fighting the good fight of faith. Of faith. Last week we talked about Satan. Now here's, I, I really want you to hear this, and some of you know this already, but some of you might be confused. Your greatest enemy is not Satan. Have you got that? Your greatest enemy is not Satan. Jan and I went to a movie a couple of weeks ago, it was about a guy that was demon-possessed. 
you, you wouldn't think you could make much of a movie out of just a dialogue between an unsaved psychiatrist and a guy that's demon-possessed. It, it really, it, Christian movies or you know, don't try to get your theology out of Christian so-called movies, please. But this really had some good things to say, but I went away from that thinking this, and you need to think this, because a lot of Christians will walk away, I'm afraid of Satan. The only thing that Satan can do is tempt you to sin. Satan is not your greatest enemy. Sin is your greatest enemy. Satan tempts, sin kills. And that's why the work of sanctification is hard work. But what have we set our hope on? What does Paul say? Look at it. What do we hope in? Our own ability? No, we set our hope in the living God. I read a lot of Jerry Bridges. If you don't have his little paperback book, you can get it. I'm sure it's still in print. The Pursuit of Godliness. Excuse me, The Pursuit of Holiness and then his follow-up book, The, the, the Practice of Godliness. Looked at that book and he, he talked about having that desire for and that love for and that fear of God. And you and I ought to have a holy fear of God. Christian, are you listening? Not a fear of judgment. That's been taken care of. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I, I, I saw this and I thought this is right on target. And it's a reminder of what that fear of God looks like. Have you ever been driving down the highway or, or memorial or whatever and a policeman pulls up right next to you? What do you do? What do you do automatically? Look down. Usually you take your foot off of the accelerator and maybe you tap the brakes. Why? Because, I'll tell you why I do it, I'm forced to drive in the light of that policeman's presence. I have no fear that he's going to shoot me. But I do have a healthy respect that he is the one who has the law and who can apply that law to my life. His presence affects my driving. Am I the only one? <laughs> Ed said, yeah. He, he lies about other things too. Okay. Okay, now watch this. You're driving. So you're, you're, you're going alongside this policeman. Do you pass him? No, you never pass him. I, what I'm saying is, I look, and is there a parallel with God? There are so many times when I go through life and I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking consciously that I'm living in the presence of the God who saved me. I don't fear his condemnation. I will never stand at, in his judgment. I will give an account at the Bema seat. But if we really know our God, and Jerry Bridges said it right, desire, love, but we forget sometimes the fear of God, a healthy, holy fear of a holy God, the holy God who saved us in Jesus Christ. And 
And if I'm aware of his presence, just like driving next to the policeman, driving in the light of that policeman's presence, I will be living my life. The words that I say, this is coming up in a minute, the conduct that I, my whole life, I'll be living in the light of his presence. That's absolutely huge. So, let's go on and apply that. What does that look like? Five things. Really, it's two things with three characteristics. Verse 12, young and old. Believers are to be godly types, examples to others in speech and conduct. Those are the two big, the the characteristic areas of life. Manifesting in both speech and conduct the gospeled qualities of love, faith, and purity. This is not strapping on morality. This is living out of a gospeled life. So graduates, let me, let me say something to you, you, you teenagers, and all of you who are young. Don't let, Paul says this, and by the way, Timothy was probably early 30s, Paul says to Timothy, don't let others look down on your being young. In fact, if you'll look look at the verse, two key words really pop out to me, let and set. Let no one look down on you because you're young. Now, let me add this, and, and this is good because I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Let no one look down upon you because you're old. Okay? So let and set. Don't let them. Now, by the way, what this means is when, it, when, it says, when Paul says don't let them look down on your youthfulness, being young, he doesn't mean if they're looking down on you, you walk up and correct them. You shouldn't do You shouldn't look down upon me because I'm young or if you're old. You should listen to me because I'm old. No, here's what he says. How do you not let them look down on you being young or old or any age in between? Set. Set an example. Okay. You graduates, what are you going to do when you, when you graduate? You're going to go to work? Go to college? I've got a career for you, okay? I want you to go into modeling. By the way, you older folks, Ed, I want you to go into modeling. That's the other Ed. That's what Paul says. Go into modeling. Set an example. The word is type. It's, it's like if, if you've ever worked in a print shop, well, you probably haven't. I have. And there is a type, the typeset that they, they used to do. And so it would make an impression. Listen to me. That's what Paul is telling for all of us who are gospeled people to do. I don't care how old or how young you are. You don't set people straight who look down upon you by setting them straight 
or demanding respect. It means that you don't give any reason for them to look down on you because you're making a godly impression. Let me let you in on a little secret. You're going to make an impression. Are you hearing me? Every day, in every way, in everything you say and do, you will make an impression. Young people, you're, you got that? There's no neutrality. You're making an impression. The only question is, will it be a godly or an ungodly impression? Paul tells Titus, Lord willing, someday we'll be in Titus. After we finish 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we're going to show yourself in all respects. See, this is not just something for young Timothy. It's for Titus to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That is a great commentary on just what Paul was saying. Okay, here's another way to say it. Young people, display a maturity, a spiritual maturity that is beyond your years. Old people, live in such a way that, well, let me say it spiritually speaking, act your age. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Set an example. Young people in in an earlier generation, one that, that preceded mine, young men went to work maybe at 10, 12 they, they were, worked alongside their parents. Young ladies did too on the farm. And so, so they, there, there, was a, there was a level of outward maturity that they had that, that maybe we don't get the chance in our current generation. But, but please, please, this, what we're talking about today is beyond worldly character. And so no matter what your chronological age You are responsible before God to act your age and then to prepare yourself for the next age or season of life. And the greatest tools that you have, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Brothers, join in imitating me. That's the third thing that we have. Look around, find men and women who have some experience walking in godliness. There are a lot of things that people could say about you or me. I think the highest compliment would be, he's a godly man or she's a godly woman. Well, let's look at these two areas of life, speech. Why is speech so important? By the way, we'll show it in just a minute. Will you be judged for your speech? Why? So if you're moral in your speech, are you okay? You'll be judged for your speech because your speech indicates what's in your heart. There's an old saying, I know some of you know it, what's down in the well 
Maybe you don't know it. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Here's why speech is so important. It shows you what is going on in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can't help it. And one of two things is going to happen. The treasure is your heart. If you've got good treasure, that means you're a gospel person and you're growing in godliness, guess what? Your speech will reflect that. If you're not a godly person, if you've not been gospeled or if you're carnally minded, which you need to repent and turn away from that, then out of that treasure, it's an evil treasure, guess what's going to come out of your mouth? What? Profanity, maybe? Lies? Critical speech? You can just go down the list, and that's why we have to watch. We have to watch our mouths because they indicate what's going on in our heart. And so if, if you see that, now, we had this experience with one of our kids that I can remember. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this first in a minute, but we had this experience where, well, it was our son, Jason. And he was out back. He, he remembers this, don't you? And he, he said, Jan does. He said a bad word. He heard it from a neighbor kid. At least that's what we always say. We always blame the neighbor kids, right? It was probably a deacon's kid. That's why pastor's kids are so bad. They're playing with the deacon's kids, you know. So he said a bad word. Jane had the windows open. Young man come in here. And we washed his mouth out with soap. We literally did that. Can you believe that? That's so archaic. But the real key is not to wash your mouth out with soap. It's to wash your heart with the blood of Jesus. Speech, speaking the truth. Men and women, we are awash in our culture. This is worldwide, but we're seeing this close in on us where lies have become truth. And you will be judged, maybe even sent to jail or at least fined, it's that way in Canada right now, for saying the truth instead of bowing and saying a lie. Uh, someone from last week, in fact, a couple of people sent me an article. I, I'm just going to read a little bit from it because I think it is absolutely so vital that we make sure that our words, no corrupting speech, come out of our mouths. Only such is good for building up that it'll give, the, give edification for those who hear it. And, and speaking the truth in love is one of those ways. Rosaria Butterfield. You, you need to Google this and get this. It's a two-page article. Three. It's tremendous. Rosaria, if you don't know her history, was heavily involved in the, in the LGBTQIA plus 
movement and lifestyle, very intelligent, brilliant, lived in the full throes, activist. And the Lord saved her and brought her out of that. And there was a time when I would recommend her writings, and then then she began to to do something that I, I really felt uncomfortable with, and she fell into the camp of other people, so-called Christians, I don't know. I can't judge them eternally. But she started using preferred pronouns. And I stopped recommending her writings. But last week, she came out with this. And by the way, speaking the truth in love, this is just one example and why it can be so very important. Let me just read to you. Can I read to you a little bit of what she said? She said, this is, getting this wrong is not, not a matter of personal liberty. How is using transgender pronouns sinful, you might ask? Using transgender pronouns is a sin against the Ninth Commandment and encourages people to sin against the Tenth Commandment. Using transgendered pronouns is a sin against the creation ordinance. Man, she is, she is speaking biblical truth here. Using transgendered pronouns is a sin against image bearing. Using transgendered pronouns discourages a believer's progressive sanctification and it falsifies the gospel. Now, she gave several others. I, in, in, in the interest of time, I hope this primes you to look this up, Google it, why I no longer use transgender pronouns by Rosaria Butterfield. But then she drops down, and I thought, wow, I know this girl. Christian author and counselor, Laura Perry Smaltz. She lives right here in Oklahoma City. She works for First Stone Ministries. She's been to our church. She spent years in a, in a transgender life and then came out of that, is married. Her husband, as I understand it, is on staff at a local church. But listen to this young lady's personal testimony of how powerful the truth is. This is why I'm sharing it. Speak the truth in love. She said, for Laura... When the Lord enlivened her heart and mind with the gospel, she returned to the church of her youth and her conservative Christian parents. Her church and parents had refused to use her preferred pronouns all the years she lived in the false identity of transgenderism. Why did she return to them? Their refusal to lie compelled her trust. Today, Laura is among the most beautiful, godly, and feminine women that I know. In speech, in speech, Paul says, but also, let's look on, he says, in conduct, Let your walk match your talk. Conduct. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So in your conduct, your speech and your conduct, your walk is matching your talk, and your talk grows out of a heart that has been thoroughly gospeled. Or not. And if your heart hasn't been thoroughly gospeled, then your mouth is going to reflect that. Guess what? So will your conduct. In terms of the life and, and the conduct, three qualities, and then we wrap this up. All right? Three qualities in speech and conduct. The first one is love. Godly and godlike self-sacrificial service, not warm, gushy feelings, but seeking the best for other people. One of my go-to verses is, I seek to apply personally, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I remind myself, this is how Jesus loved me. If I'm going to walk in love, if you're going to walk in love, no matter what your age then while that person, and it could be your spouse, it could be you know, somebody in your family, while they are weak, what do you do? You love with a, with a love that gives yourself up. Self-sacrificial love. When they are sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And look at this, the third one, it even goes further. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And by the way, if you're not sure how to do that in your home with, with other people, just, just read and reread and memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 8. Your, your speech and your conduct. Is your speech according to that? Is your conduct? Love is patient, kind, does not envy, boast. Is this for us? No, wait, wait, wait. Are you sure? Are you sure? Isn't this just something you read at a wedding and you forget it? No, love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, it is not rude, does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, love endures all things. Love never ends. So in love, in faith, that, that word really means faithfulness. It means being able to be reliable, unswerving commitment, keeping your promises, and above all, what does faithfulness mean? I'm going to give you three slides right here. This is all the, the same passage of Scripture. Faithfulness is about stewardship. So if, when you're living with your words and with your conduct, there is a stewardship that you have. And it's shown in Matthew 25, it will be like a man who goes on a journey, calls his servants and trusts to them property. To one he gives five. By the way, these guys did not compare with each other. And they were not compared with each other. They were given talents according to what God wanted to give them. So are you. You're not responsible for what somebody else does with his or her talent. You're only responsible for what you do with yours. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents. He went out and worked and earned five more. 
two, he earned two talents more, but the one who received his one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And then, and I'm ending with this, this part of the story. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. What does God expect from you and me in our speech and in our conduct? Stewardship. And it may seem like a long time, but the master is coming again. And oh, by the way, stewardship is not optional. Christian or non-Christian, stewardship is non-optional. The last thing, purity above reproach. Oh my. In all of life, God has called us, not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Flee youthful passions. Is that just for young people? Can old people have youthful passions? Mm -hmm. Flee them. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Basically, the qualifications Paul gave back in chapter 3, if you're a man, you're to be a one-woman kind of man. If you're a woman, you're to be a one-man kind of woman, period. That's the way God created it to be. First Thessalonians 4 and then 2 Timothy. Let me go back to that. Or not. Okay. I'm advancing, I'm advancing to the closing song. I ought to hear an amen for that. Let me back up. Okay. I just, I, here's, here, here's the closing. Uh, here it is. Okay. Matthew 7. Been talking about being gospeled. Here it is. Here it is. Please, I know we're just about to finish, but this is the most important part of it. There's the narrow gate. There's the wide gate. There are only two, two roads. There's no center lane there's no off-ramp. There's only the wide gate that leads to destruction, and there's the narrow gate that leads to life. And like truth and lies, there are only the two. No neutrality. Every word you speak, every act that you make will either be a godly or an ungodly act. And you and I are stewards of all of those things. One last illustration, and then we sing, and you respond. Last week, a guy by the name of Jerry Springer died. Most of you guys don't know who Jerry Springer is. He was a talk show host, and I, I, I don't think I ever saw a show, but I, I think it was controversial, and he had some controversial people on there and, and all of the rest of that. But I was struck by what was recorded about his what he said would be his final thought. Here's what he said. I figured that when the judge, my judgment day comes, now, by the way, as a non-believer, which I'm assuming that he was, at least he was smart enough to recognize that his judgment day is coming. It's appointed once for a man to die, and after that, the judgment, right? He said, my closing argument 
to God when he's ready to decide where to send me is, oh, remember my final thought. I hope that my final thought is the one that can speak to my character. So he's depending his eternity on his final thought? That's, that's his argument? And I immediately thought of the old hymn written by Eliza Edmonds Hewitt. We're going to sing, by the way, called My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Listen, listen to the difference. This is my argument. It's about me and how I've lived my life, and I hope that's good enough. Here's what she wrote. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Father, oh how I pray, I cry out to you that if there is anyone here today who is ungospeled, maybe they've been in church all their lives, but they've never submitted to you, never bowed the knee, never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone. Oh God, how I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray that each of us who knows you, that we, we know that we are gospeled people, frail, weak, imperfect, all of that. But Lord, we, we know that we seek, we desire to live out of a changed heart, to be gospeled people. I pray that you would help us to grow in speech and in conduct, with love and faithfulness and purity. Until that day, either when we die or you come to take us home. And so help this final old hymn be a testimony of the reality of the heart of those of us who know you and love you and seek that godliness and holiness without which no one will see God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.